This month on Focus Black Oklahoma, we review stories from 2022 for which Focus Black Oklahoma won a DuPont Columbia Award, a NAACP Image Award, two Oklahoma Society of Professional Journalists Awards, two Webby Awards, and was a Peabody Award nominee. Our top stories from the past year cover a range of topics, including tracking the increased activity of white supremacist group United Aryan Brotherhood, Tulsa's ongoing search for graves of the 1921 race massacre victims, how restoring the old Mogi Black Hospital is a labor of love for one local man, learn about the Tulsa Fortune 500 company that has been financing politicians who claim that the 2020 presidential election was stolen, and discover ongoing efforts to revitalize indigenous cuisine in Minnesota. All this and more on Focus Black Oklahoma. Focus Black Oklahoma is sponsored by Phillips Seminary, welcoming nonviolence trainer Kazu Haga in a concert by the many as part of a Transforming Justice Conference. Online at wherefaithleads.com slash remindrenew. This is Focus Black Oklahoma. I'm Jacob Littlebear. And I'm Kuma Roberts. For our final broadcast of the year, we will review Focus Black Oklahoma's most popular, award-winning, and engaging stories from 2022. This year, Focus Black Oklahoma was the recipient of a 2022 DuPont Columbia Award, a NAACP Image Award, an Oklahoma Society of Professional Journalists Award, two Webby Awards, and was a Peabody Award nominee. Oklahoma's teacher shortage is reaching critical levels, but finding black teachers is almost impossible. Anthony Cherry has details on how finding representation in education is the new challenge for school districts in this story from September. At the Tulsa Public Schools School Board meeting on Monday, August 1st, 2022, Superintendent Dr. Deborah Gist issued an urgent statewide call to arms, characterizing the Oklahoma teacher shortage as a situation of catastrophic proportions. You might say, yeah, catastrophe is not too uh, extreme a word to use to describe it. John Waldron is a Democratic representative from Oklahoma District 77. Before joining the Common Education Committee, Waldron also served as a teacher at Booker T. Washington High School, a historically black high school in the Greenwood District of Tulsa. I think it's a catastrophe uh, of you know historic proportions. We hit a new record in emergency teacher certifications in July. The Oklahoma State Board of Education has approved 1,892 emergency certificates and counting. This includes 726 renewals since June 1st. While emergency certified teachers who may or may not be teaching in their areas of expertise may eventually learn to master the craft of teaching over time. But simply put, a less qualified teacher is a significant barrier to student success. And we don't have enough young people going into education through the traditional and even the non-traditional pipelines to meet the number of teachers who are retiring after long years of service. And that affects learning outcomes for our students. This teacher shortage disproportionately impacts schools with high numbers of poor black and brown populations that are already struggling. And as you might expect, uh, the more uh, at risk or vulnerable the school uh, population is, the deeper the teacher recruitment problem is. That is, if you're in a school that's uh, Title I, you're more likely to have inexperienced emergency certified teachers than if you were in a school in a more affluent neighborhood. So yeah, it's a big problem. According to a RAND Corporation survey, one of four teachers plan to leave the profession in 2021. When it comes to black teachers, those numbers doubled. Fewer than one in 10 teachers are black in the United States at 7%. Compare this to the fact that black Americans make up 13% of the nation's population. Also consider that the number of black male teachers is lower than 2%. Melissa Jones Chunu is a doctoral candidate at Oral Roberts University studying instructional leadership. Her role as an administrator at Celia Clinton Elementary School gives her a unique perspective 
on the teaching shortage in general, Black teachers are more likely to teach at schools with more diverse populations, as well as more diverse challenges. And I think that representation, again, matters. And our young students of different races need to see people that look like them. Urban school districts in Oklahoma tend to have three times the number of Black and twice the number of Hispanic students than the state average. Is there hope to break this trend as Oklahoma continues to hemorrhage qualified and certified professional educators of all races? By the year 1950, approximately half of all Black professionals working in the United States were employed as teachers. Historically, Black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, provided Black educators and other professionals with training and advanced degrees. They played a crucial role in American history because predominantly white institutions, or PWIs, were segregated and barred blacks from entrance before desegregation. Historian Tia C. Matkins from the University of California, Berkeley, asserts that it was desegregation mandated by Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, which marked the beginning of a mass exodus of black educators in the United States. Soon after integration, resegregation of staff began. Black teachers were generally not hired to teach in classrooms with white students in them, integrated or not. 39,000 black teachers lost their jobs after desegregation in 17 states from 1954 to 1965. Between 1988 and 2008, Teachers of color were 24% more likely to leave the teaching profession than their white counterparts, according to Madkins. Today, the loss of black teachers persists with more nuanced factors at play. Black teachers are more likely to be hired at challenging schools with high turnover rates, insufficient resources, and high needs populations. 75% reported high stress levels. Many of these black teachers matriculated from school districts that provided subpar K-12 experiences, funding, teacher quality, resources, large class sizes, and staff layoffs. This creates a destructive cycle for black communities. Disdain for this same cycle drives thousands of black teachers to enter the profession to help dismantle it. The problem has been getting the best of them to stay. There are many barriers that um, have caused us to recruit quality teachers. And I'm going to put this on colleges. I don't think that many colleges have adequately prepared our graduates to really teach in these areas. Another significant factor includes the lack of blacks enrolled in college and teacher preparation courses. Overall enrollment of all demographics in teacher preparation courses has dwindled in the past decade. Lack of preparedness for standardized testing requirements for teacher licensure has been a hurdle for teachers of all ethnicities. There is also the hurdle of the expense of the test, especially if a potential candidate takes the test multiple times. Jones Shunu speaks to this urgent need. Oh, well, <laughs> definitely education needs to be funded more, duh. That, that would solve half your problems right there. People have to live. People have loans to pay off. And the average college student with a bachelor's degree has about a hundred, a hundred and twenty-five thousand to pay off. With a bachelor's and maybe a master's. Are you going to tell me I'm coming in at maybe thirty nine, maybe 40000 a year? And I'm supposed to live off that and pay off these loans? Mm. But then I can go to Texas and start off at 58, doing the same thing? <laughs> where, where are you going? <laughs> exactly. Ultimately, the goal is to retain homegrown talent. Representative Waldron added, 
Well, the uh, new law that we passed provides thousands of dollars in stipends. I think a $2,500 initial scholarship plus money over the first five years that the teacher is in a, an Oklahoma public school. And it comes to something like $8,500 $8, in incentives over that period of time. That lowers economic barriers, which means opens up education to more kinds of students. And that should promote diversity along with the recruitment efforts our education schools are undertaking now. That will make a uh, very big difference, but it's going to make that difference slowly over time. We've got to keep with it. It's going to take time. We've done a few other good things uh, as well, but uh, you said our education policymakers, the truth is lots of us get involved in education policy. Um, Many of us from a different direction. And those guys want to talk about critical race theory. They want to talk about indoctrination. They want to, talk, they want to accuse teachers of being all kinds of terrible things. They, want to, they call them leftists. They talk about their liberal teachers unions. And these guys are really not being helpful. Um, that kind of language and rhetoric draw, it drives people out of the profession. Um, and it contributes to the erosion of quality for public education. Maybe some of the politicians are, don't realize what they're doing. Recruiting and retaining qualified people involves putting them in thoughtful, supportive places where they can thrive. Funding is merely a part of the complex equation. Waldron emphasizes the importance of cultivating a homogenous pool of talent. Uh, and the first principal at Booker T was a man named Ellis Walker Woods. Uh, the man was a legend in his time, and he needs to be remembered today. He was principal for 35 years. He knew all the kids in his community. When he heard about a bright student in the middle school, he would make sure that they were coming to high school, which was not everybody didn't do that back in the day. But he'd talk to your parents, and you went to Booker T. And then he'd keep track of your progress at Booker T and come and talk to you about college. And if you said, well, you know, there's no money for college, he would say, let me make some calls. And he had a network of HBCUs around the region, and he'd get you into one of those schools. And then there'd be a call about graduate school, uh, maybe your PhD. And then someday you'd get a telegram from EW saying, OK, now it's time to come back and teach. That's how we did it. He built it from the ground up using the resources in the community. We should do the same. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Anthony Cherry in Tulsa. Shonda Little explores the motivations and tactics used by white supremacist gangs in the state and where they appear to be setting up shop. Here is her segment on the United Aryan Brotherhood, which we aired in January. The Washington Post picked up the story in September. On October 11, 2021, Governor Kevin Stitt released a statement through Oklahoma.gov about his trip to the Texas-Mexico border. Stitt spoke about methamphetamine and fentanyl being trafficked to Americans, particularly Oklahomans. However, the irony that Governor Stitt would use state resources to visit the nation's border with Mexico while never speaking once about the criminal problems that Oklahoma faces from the Universal Aryan Brotherhood was not missed by all. Forrest Bennett, representing Oklahoma State House's 92nd District, shared multiple links to newspaper articles and press releases from law enforcement agencies related to crimes and convictions of the Universal Aryan Brotherhood members, also known as the UAB. The UAB is believed to have been founded in 1993 in Oklahoma's prisons. Today, their scope goes far beyond the prison walls of McAllister and other major penal institutions. What started as a problem primarily for prisons and Oklahoma's largest cities is now stretching to the state's most rural counties. Yet, as large as the problem appears to be, the UAB is rarely spoken of on a statewide level. However, Angela Marcy, District Attorney for Oklahoma's 2nd District, and jailers at the Beckham County Detention Center are all too familiar with the UAB's crimes. Marcy spoke about how the UAB affects crime in western Oklahoma and also the state's 77 counties at large. The UABs are an extremely violent and well-networked gang, and so they act and commit crimes both within the prison walls 
as well as outside in our communities. They work with people both within the prisons and outside the prisons. Although the UABs are known for their white supremacist iconography, D.A. Marcy made clear that the organized gang has no racial disparity in their victims. They sell to addicts, and addicts are of all races. Money is only one color. It's green. That's what they care about at that point. Marcy and other law enforcement have seen the UABs from metropolitan areas take up residence in rural Oklahoma. The causes are not totally known, but experts stipulate that being welcomed into specific industries, low cost of living, the autonomy of a new environment, and local poverty are playing a role. There's lots of statistics, I think, about poverty levels and crime levels and substance use and alcohol use. And so the economy and how it's going certainly can impact um, what's going on criminally. The bigger issue, at least right now, that I think probably makes people more likely to become involved in one of these organizations is I believe our communities are pretty fractured right now with with the isolation that we've had to endure due to the pandemic. Captain Brandon Sims and Lieutenant Vincent Scott are both deputies with the Beckham County Sheriff's Office. The two men both work in the jail area of the Beckham County Detention Center. Their days are spent overseeing primarily the welfare of the inmates and the staff who attend to them. Captain Sims spoke of the impact the UABs have on the daily life at the Beckham County Detention Center. The UAB is one of our most common gangs here at the facility. Their impact here, it can be big. They uh, extort a lot of other inmates. They uh, fight with a lot of other inmates, cause trouble, try to run the pods. They basically show their dominance back there, especially when they have a lot of brothers is what I'll call them, just all UAB members. They will push us. They will try to see what they get by with every day. Lieutenant Scott spoke about how UAB members get others to smuggle contraband or commit other crimes on behalf of the gang. You know, they're offered a lot of money to to smuggle drugs or cell phones or, you know, any kind of contraband in facility during a visit. They make drops in various places within the facility and off the facility to be picked up. You know, some women do it for love. You know, they love these guys. I think the biggest motive is probably money and also being active gang members themselves bringing contraband in for these guys. They would hire prostitutes at Oklahoma City to bring it in. These guys are smart. They use a lot of different ways, a lot of manipulation to do it. I've seen them where they'll get a female staff member. They'll start that game with them. And before you know it, they're caught up in the game and they have to start bringing stuff in for them. A quick online search of the Universal Aryan Brotherhood in Oklahoma demonstrates the pervasive nature of this white supremacist prison gang in everyday life. While Oklahoma's governor and other statewide elected officials continue to compete for airtime in discussing crime upon America's southern border, almost no one seems willing to talk about the dangers in their own backyard. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Shonda Little in Beckham County. Focus Black Oklahoma's three-part series, The Battle for Greenwood, was the recipient of an award from the Oklahoma Society of Professional Journalists in the Special Programs category. This excerpt, narrated by former co-host Colby Webster, is from the third episode titled Reparations and takes a deep dive into the city's controversial efforts to identify potential mass graves that resulted from the 1921 race massacre. As of this recording, 19 additional adult graves and two child burials have been discovered at Oaklawn Cemetery. I think the clearest thing that's changed in, in recent history, and you see it by this process, is that we're not trying to, to pretend that something didn't happen. Uh, we're not trying to just say, oh, it's in the past. We are actively pursuing the truth on this, wherever it leads us. Um, and we're doing that in a transparent way. Tulsa Mayor G.T. Bynum was upbeat about the city's exhumation of mass graves, of sites where race massacre victims might have been buried. Archaeologists have made a startling discovery, a mass grave in Tulsa, what they believe to be the remains of victims of the 1921 race massacre there. 
at least 12 bodies in a spot the city had no record of anyone buried. Sierra Pizarro, NBC station KJRH live on scene. Sierra, how is the city of Tulsa coming to grips with this? This is an incredible moment for the Tulsa community, one that's acknowledged by Mayor G.T. Bynum today. I'm thankful for the citizens of Tulsa uh, who have reversed nearly a century of the conventional wisdom of this being something that we don't want to talk about and that we just want to put behind us and pretend like it never happened. This generation of Tulsans is not doing that. Bynum's remarks make a major assumption that a century had to pass before the mass graves were addressed. But these sites have been a part of race massacre lore for decades. Here's 60 Minutes correspondent Bob Simon in 1999. Most of the dead were buried quickly in unmarked graves around town. But some apparently were laid to rest here in Tulsa's Oaklawn Cemetery in this anonymous section reserved for paupers. There were no funerals. The authorities outlawed funerals. There were no coffins, no headstones, no records of the burials. But a 10-year-old boy saw it all. Clyde Eddy walked by the cemetery with a friend, saw some men digging and some big wooden crates. And we went in, naturally, and walked up to the first one and raised the lid up. There were three bodies of black men in it, just thrown in there. And we went over to another crate, a larger crate, and raised the lid on it. And uh, there was four bodies in this one. And there was, let's see, one, two, there's either four or five more boxes scattered around. And uh, about that time, one of the men saw us. And he run us out. The newspapers didn't think the mass graves deserved many headlines. And the White City Fathers, proud of their booming oil town, wanted to bury the story along with the bodies. Not long after the exhumation, those bodies were buried again. Whitney Chapman, with Tulsa's Center for Public Secrets, describes how that process played out. I think what we found really enlightening was really how the Public Oversight Committee had been leveraged or not leveraged in this entire process and uh, what the public knows or doesn't know. So it's interesting again, like with the reparations, all of a sudden it just wasn't in the paper anymore. What happened basically towards the end of the dig was there was a private briefing for the Public Oversight Committee and it was instigated through one of the folks on the Public Oversight Committee saying, hey, we need some answers around this. And so there's a really interesting video, if anyone has three hours <laughs> to watch. The link is on the website for Center for Public Secrets and then also in our link bio on Instagram. So this is a three-hour private briefing from the city to the Public Oversight Committee. And it's when they're saying, hey, we are going to, you know, re-intern the bodies. We're stopping the dig. You know, here's why. And there were so many questions and not a lot of answers on why things were happening. And so there was a unanimous decision being made at that point from the Public Oversight Committee to say, no, we don't wanna reinturn the grave, the bodies. And then three days later, the bodies were reinturned with little conversation back to the Public Oversight Committee. And so again, it's just this continual dismissal of the community and what they need and the city continuing to come in and just doing what they feel like is the right thing for who, I'm not sure. And this hasty, secretive reburial process hardly offered closure. Instead, it reopened wounds and sparked protests from people like Tulsa Race Massacre descendant Celie Butler Davis. This is criminal. This is criminal. This is a crime. This is a crime. This is a crime. You are just burying our bodies right back up. This is a crime. Tulsa Race Massacre descendant Joy McCondishy was overwhelmed. The worst funeral I ever been to. Because they didn't even chop down the weeds. Here's Heather Nash, another descendant. We should have had an opportunity to have whatever our ritual is. Some people throw flowers on their grave. We should have got to do what black people do. This time, we ain't on the tree, we under it. And we still got white people hanging around. And here's Celie Butler Davis again. We would like to know, as a matter of fact, who those remains are. I am a descendant of the victim of the 1921 race massacre. We have identified survivors, but we're still looking for some of our other family members. 
that could be unaccounted for, especially the men. I'm specifically looking for my uncle, Etoy Reed. And this, they, they, they also discovered trauma bullets and trauma, skeletal trauma, and have not allowed the FBI to, to get involved to do a thorough investigation to determine specifically what happened to our ancestors. It's a criminal act, and I believe that they are just trying to cover it right back up again now that all of the light is off of Tulsa after the 100-year centennial. You're listening to Focus Black Oklahoma. In our November broadcast, Nick Alexandrov brought us the story of how one Tulsa Fortune 500 company has been using its money to support campaigns of politicians who proclaim, without evidence, that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump. You know, at its, at its most fundamental level, it basically it means January 6th is every day now. Robert McGuire is the research director for CREW, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. For him, January 6th showed how gripped certain sectors of our political system are by this this lie. The big lie. The big lie. The big lie. Big lie. Big lie. That Donald Trump was the true winner of 2020's presidential race. There's no evidence for that claim. But in the 2022 midterms, scores of big lie proponents came to power. The New York Times counts nearly 200, all Republicans. HuffPost tallies 19 in the Senate and 154 in the House. Here's one of them. There were election irregularities and unconstitutional overreach of unelected bureaucrats who were rewriting election law in certain states. Elise Stefanik represents New York's 21st congressional district. She won her fifth term on November 8th beating her challenger by 50,000 votes. We delivered, you delivered, another landslide victory. And with $10,000 in campaign funds from a Tulsa business. Infrastructure, performance, reliability, integrity, heart. They all work hand in hand to drive the pipeline of progress. The question is not what makes energy happen, It's who makes energy happen. The answer is Williams. Williams is... Company that handles 30% of the nation's natural gas. According to its president and CEO, Alan S. Armstrong, headquartered in downtown Tulsa's BOK Tower, Williams, which never responded to our interview request, is number seven on the Oklahomans' list of the state's top businesses and ranked 347th on this year's Fortune 500. Like many companies, Williams has a Political Action Committee, or PAC. This entity raises money for scores of political candidates countrywide, like North Carolina Congressman Richard Hudson. That every legal vote was counted, that the process was fair and, and, and transparent and legal. Uh, we, don't, we don't have that certainty right now. He's gotten $7,500 from the Williams PAC since January 2021. In the same time frame, Williams donated $2,500 to Congressman Mike Bost. Mike fights every day for the hardworking people of Illinois, and I know it probably better than anyone. Representative Bost, like Representatives Hudson and Stefanik, voted to overturn the 2020 election results. They're just three among dozens of election deniers supported by the Williams PAC. So Williams, they donated about $316,000 to 50 members of Congress. 48 of whom won on November 8th. Who objected to certifying the 2020 presidential election results. And that made up about 32% of the company's total giving during this last cycle. That's Sergio Hernandez. I'm a news apps developer at ProPublica. He built an app focused on big corporations, specifically those funding the 147 members of Congress who voted to invalidate Joe Biden's presidential victory. So we looked at all of the Fortune 500 companies and found that about 230 
I think it's about 228, had provided some kind of financial support to those members of Congress, those 147 members of Congress. And that altogether, they've put in about $13 million into those candidates' campaign committees during the last cycle. Of those 228 major firms, the Williams PAC ranks seventh in terms of total giving. It gets much of its money from top executives, including its CEO. We always try to do the right thing. We have a culture of doing that. Alan Armstrong has led Williams since 2011. In the past two years, he's given $10,000 to his company's PAC. Debbie Cowan is the firm's senior vice president and chief human resources officer. Ethical and moral considerations are in front and center in our world today, and they need to be in front and center of also making our business uh, decisions and our operations. She gave $9,500 to the Williams PAC. Other top contributions, the nearly $10,000 from Michael G. Dunn, executive vice president and chief operating officer, and $9,600 from Chad J. Zamarin, senior vice president of corporate strategic development. Then there's the board of directors, a cohort of current and former top executives at leading oil, gas, and mining companies. 11 of its 12 members donated to the tune of $76,000. There really is no other reason for a corporation to give political contributions aside from the fact that they need access to powerful lawmakers in order to be able to influence them. And the way to do that is to give money. That's Citizens for Ethics' Robert McGuire again. Research supports his explanation. A 2020 article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, for example, concluded, based on nearly three decades of data, that oil and gas companies invest in legislators that vote against the environment. And the Williams-backed candidates share more than a false belief in election fraud. They all earn failing grades in the current cycle from the League of Conservation Voters, which gauges legislators' support for environmental laws. They are giving because it, it is in their best interest to do so because members of Congress hold sway over the laws and regulations that impact their business on a daily basis. And so we saw this as an opportunity to basically put that in a harsh relief. To show that, for many firms, crowding the House with anti-democracy candidates is a bearable cost, even if that- it means January 6th is every day now. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Nick Alexandrov in Tulsa. Also from our November broadcast, Jasmine Bivar-Toby shares the story of Lehman Lewis's ongoing pledge to restore the Okmulgee Black Hospital through the work of the nonprofit organization Landmark for All Generations. Lehman Lewis has spent his entire life in Okmulgee. For 39 years, he worked in auto repair at the Harlan Motor Company, 20 of those years being the service manager. Outside of work, he's pastored a Baptist church for over 30 years and served on various leadership boards in the community. These elements of his life are only an example of Lehman's dedication to the development and perseverance of Okmulgee. In 2015, Lehman's commitment to the Black historical representation of Okmulgee went to the next level when he purchased the only Black hospital in Oklahoma left standing and simultaneously founded Landmark for All Generations, a 501c3 organization. The Okmulgee Black Hospital, created in 1922, was established to serve the needs of African Americans during racial segregation in the 20th century. The construction was funded in part by Black citizens and was operated by a completely Black medical staff. During this era, Black medical practitioners were not licensed to operate in white, non-integrated facilities. The hospital, which opened in 1924, was seen as a beacon of light and opportunity for equality amongst the racial tensions of the times, in particular after the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Lewis describes his connection to the hospital. And I'm old enough that to have been able to come in the hospital when it was, you know, a hospital. Uh, I had an uncle that was a patient in here 
And so I visited him here. Uh, like I said that it, it closed because the city would not keep it updated so the doctors would have, you know, the right equipment for the time. But when you, when you look at how, you know, had they not had the vision to do this during the time period, we're talking the time period, during that time period, then people of color had nowhere to go to, to get their medical treatment. And whatever white doctor worked on them or, you know, used as patients was in jeopardy because that was the thing that they weren't supposed to do. So they, they couldn't do it in the open, you know, like everything else. Because if they did, they would uh, be outcast or what have you. Lehman and his local volunteer team aspire to rebuild the hospital to its glory by establishing a Black hospital museum, multicultural co-working space, and continuing medical care. The renovation of the more than 100-year-old hospital has been scheduled in phases due to the funding needs of this massive project. Phase one, the roof construction, was fully funded by a local aircraft company, Covington Craft Complete, in 2019. The next year, phase two was kicked off with a challenge created by Lehman's former employer and local philanthropist, Fred Harlan. The challenge encourages groups to pull together $2,100 for each window or door to be replaced. This challenge is still ongoing and open for donations through the website landmarkforallgenerations.com. Phases three through seven are plumbing, heating, electrical, and other internal construction work. The final two phases are the restoration of structures and formation of the museum. Due to the funding of all phases being largely supported by grants written by volunteers, there is no estimated timeline of completion for this project. According to Julie Roberts, a volunteer grant writer for Landmark for All Generations, the museum is expected to be a great tourist attraction due to its location on Highway 75. The hospital's there, right yeah. on a perfect, busy highway where it's going to draw tourism into the community when we can get it open to tell the story of the hospital, to promote the history of Black Oklahoma, Black Old Mommy, yeah. just to tell all those stories that are out there. I mean, yeah. you know, we've been also interviewing people who were born here, who worked here, who were in the hospital here. We've got to get their stories before they're gone. Well, and, and the reason he named this Landmark for All Generations, it's not just for the Black community, it's for anybody who wants to know the history of this town, of this state, of the plight of the African-Americans and what they went through because like me now, I'm like embarrassed and ashamed, you know, that this happened, you know. But it needs, it's a story that needs to be told and it needs to be for everyone to hear, you know, not just for the black community to come to. It's an Omagi story, yes, but it's representative of yeah. the nation, you know. So I think that people will come from everywhere. Lehman and his team are looking for volunteers and donations to help continue the work of restoring this historical landmark. For information on how to donate time or resources, please reach out through the website, landmarkforallgenerations.com. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Jasmine Bivar Toby in Okmogi. It's hard not to recognize that black people and their contributions have touched every part of our state. In our July broadcast, Carlos Moreno reported on how the Claremore Museum of History celebrated the one-year anniversary of its Black History exhibit. When you mention Claremore, Oklahoma, folks might remember that it's the birthplace of Will Rogers. We'll hold the distinction of being the only nation in the history of the world that ever went to the poorhouse in an automobile. Or maybe that it's the birthplace of 1950s pop and country superstar Patti Page. How much is that doggy in the window? The one with the waggly tail. How much is that doggy in the window? I do hope that 
Or that Lynn Riggs, writer of Green Grow the Lilacs, which became Rodgers and Hammerstein's first musical, Oklahoma, is also from here. Chicks and ducks and geese better scurry When I take you out in the Surrey When I take you out in the Surrey With the fringe on top What folks might not think about is that Claremore is also the home of famous Black Olympians, well-known Black military servicemen, and the first dentist to perform maxillofacial surgery, a Black professor named Charles Williams. Claremore also had a thriving Black business district. Claremore History Museum board chairman Stephen Robinson realized that in his community, this rich diversity of history in his city had faded into memory. So literally our courthouse, there were three blocks to the south and six blocks to the east. There were probably 30 black businesses, including hotels, uh, restaurants, bathhouses, uh, pool halls, uh, all kinds of businesses and those have been wiped out. Uh, the buildings are not there, uh, and we could not find even a single picture of any black business. Uh, Claremore has lots of historical pictures of down, uh, downtown and Main Street, the courthouse, but it just is a great example of how history can be forgotten or lost. Last year, Robinson received a phone call from Jerome Riley who was looking for a home for the trophy that his team, the Lincoln High School Boys Basketball Lincoln Lions, won in 1952 at the Oklahoma Class C State Championship. When the two met, Robinson discovered that Riley didn't just have a few old basketball photos and trinkets, but an entire collection of Claremore's black history going back to the city's early days. I met him uh, and sat down with him and went through all of the articles and memorabilia that he had uh, you know, saved and pulled together through the years and realized we really had enough content uh, to have a black history uh, exhibit. It, it's actually embarrassing that when you walk through our entire uh, exhibit system in the museum that up until that point we didn't have any recognition or mention of Claremore's black history other than in our school exhibit we did have the, a picture of the Lincoln School. And when you went through all of Jerome's items, you just realized what a rich and diverse group of stories and just famous people that have graduated from Lincoln and have graduated from Claremore High School, uh, that no one has been telling those stories ever. From Riley's collection, the idea was formed to make a Black History exhibit a permanent part of the Claremore History Museum. Inspired by community organizer and author of Color Me True, Mary Williams, the museum named this exhibit Heritage, History, and Hope, which was unveiled on Juneteenth in 2021. Riley asked his son Steve to pitch in with the creation of the exhibit and serve on the museum's board. So my dad called me and asked me to, to, to why don't you be on the board? Basically, he called and said, you need to get involved. He told me I need to get involved. So I'm kind of old school. When your parents tell you to do something, you do it. Steve is a mental health coordinator at Creoke's Behavioral Health Services. For him, the exhibit is an especially important point of pride showing his family's history. Just so just for me, it also, you know, like with my kids, I could bring my kids here and they could see their grandfather or other, other people who grew up in Claremore went off to do great things. But just for me, it's just been a great eye opener to say, finally, at Claremore, recognized some, some black people. All in, in basically a nutshell. The exhibit contains interactive videos, photographs, artifacts from Claremore's Negro League baseball team, the Claremore Clowns, stories such as the integration of Claremore's schools in 1955, and the family tree of one of Claremore's most prominent families. There's one family in Claremore that kind of bridges all the generations, and that's the Jones family. And uh, the first Jones was W.C. Jones, and he was the first principal of Lincoln School. And uh, his son then was C.D. Jones, who uh, was a veteran, uh, received the Purple Heart, received a letter from Congress for his service, went on to work for the city of Claremore. And his wife was a teacher at Lincoln for years and years and years. And then their, their son is Darnell Jones. Darnell Jones is a presidential appointed U.S. court district judge. 
uh, has had an unbelievable career. And then his daughter is Chenille Jones, who's the anchor on NBC News. So you can just see this one family has had such an impact on the city of Claremore. But there's other stories, too, that are trailblazers. Steve Riley feels that the Heritage, History, and Hope exhibit can bring a great pride to younger generations in Claremore. I think when you see, when they have exhibits like this and when kids come through, or kids of color or just kids in general, uh, I feel like when they see the exhibit, especially people of color, minorities, Hispanics, Native Americans, it, when kids come through, they feel like that they could go off and accomplish great things. It's kind of empowerment for, for the future generations. For more information, visit ClaremoreMOH.org. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Carlos Moreno in Claremore. In this section from our Culture Keeper series, Brittany Cordera takes us on a well-seasoned adventure toward decolonizing menus across the country. This story aired on Focus Black Oklahoma in January 2022 and was further covered by The New Yorker magazine in September. Sean Sherman and Dana Thompson are the founders of Awamni, a modern indigenous full-service establishment. Their restaurant is located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, nestled in what is now called St. Anthony's Falls, a sacred site to the Dakota and Anishinaabe people special location that it happens to be on right on the Mississippi River downtown, um, right in front of the waterfalls that used to be there that um, in the pristine form were called a Wamniyamni by the Dakota people that also lived there for countless generations. It was later renamed St. Anthony Falls. But um, we're really excited that we took the namespace back, which was just the short name of Owamniamni, which is just Owamni, and just paying homage to a lot of the Dakota history of that space. Um, even putting all indigenous plants back in the park and putting signs around that showcase the Dakota names of those plants first. Owamni has been open since July and has had many successes despite the pandemic causing short supply chains that have greatly impacted the restaurant industry. We have had a lot of really interesting um it's amazing how many opportunities actually came out of the pandemic for us. Uh, it, it it broke down the supply chain so quickly and the food system was one of the first things to be affected by it. And so I think it really did an amazing job of raising awareness about the work that we're doing and really underscored the, the philosophy that we have. The connection between Black and Sherman are their missions to decolonize the menu, the kitchen, and to allow their guests to explore the nature around them through food. Sherman and his team revitalized Native American cuisine, creating dishes that use ingredients central to the food systems of tribes from all over North America. And they source their ingredients from local and indigenous farmers and foragers. Owamni's menu features traditional indigenous flavors. So it's just a really unique restaurant. Um, it's just following the philosophy of what we've been working on for a long time is showcasing indigenous foods in North America, cutting out European colonial ingredients. So there's no dairy, no wheat flour, no cane sugar, no beef, pork, or chicken. Really focused on a lot of wild food and flavors, prioritizing purchase from indigenous producers, and just really coming up with um, just some unique options that are really representative of true flavors of North America um, and, of course, all of our indigenous, diverse indigenous communities and featuring indigenous foods of different regions, you know, because uh, we're showcasing what does indigenous foods of the Pacific Northwest taste like or the Southwest or um, the island of Manhattan or wherever that might be, you know, and just utilizing our knowledge of the land space, the peoples that live there, um, the agriculture that we was there if there was agriculture and what kind of wild foods and wild game and those are in those regions and all those pieces. So for us, we've just been working on it for so long. It's just how we develop food and we try not even to fusionize foods because we try to look at foods as very place-based and seasonal. So we might have something here in Minnesota with wild rice, sunchokes, rose hips, uh, blueberries, rabbit. Um, and we can literally just stand in one spot in the forest and look around and see all those ingredients right around you. Colonized food systems, particularly in the United States contribute to the climate crisis by commodifying the land, stripping it of biodiversity, depleting fresh water sources, and producing food for profit instead of nourishment. Sherman is rematriating indigenous food systems, healing from his childhood, hiring an all-indigenous team, and connecting guests to sustainably harvested ingredients 
that are healthy? The biggest part of the work that we do is just trying to showcase how valuable Indigenous knowledge is on a pan-Indigenous scale. So we not only look at North America, but we look at Indigenous peoples all across the world. And we look at how Indigenous peoples had these commonalities of living sustainably, utilizing primarily plant knowledge of all of this really extreme diverse regions. So we look at, you know, land-based Indigenous educations where people had thousands of generations of, uh, of knowledge being passed down, of being able to know what to do with the plants around them, how to make food or medicine or craft out of everything, and how we could be utilizing so much more plant diversity and animal protein diversity too um, when it comes down to it and how much healthier that would be in our diet. Um, and just looking at the mass production of the industrial movement of food and food production um, and how damaging that is to not only our bodies personally and, and what kind of nutrition we get from that, but also just what it's doing to our land, what it's exposing us to with chemicals, um, how it's over utilizing water um, and all the issues that comes with these massive monocultural GMO type farms. Part of it's just trying to right a wrong of what I grew up with, which was growing up on a very poor reservation, having to grow up on things like the Commodity Food Program and the FDPIR and understanding how poorly nutritional less that whole program is and all the health uh, situations that come out of that, like type 2 diabetes and obesity and heart disease. So, but I think those are the biggest, most important pieces is just not only understanding the diversities of indigenous knowledge bases on all these different regions, but understanding the commonalities of indigenous peoples and why the global global knowledge base should really be hyper aware of that, try to steward and save and uh, just protect indigenous na uh, nations and cultures and languages and knowledge bases on a global scale because they've been rapidly disappearing over the past couple of centuries um, and they're still in danger today. Their philosophy to help develop more indigenous food producers and influence indigenous peoples to eat healthier and be conscious of where their food comes from. From Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Brittany Cordera in Deep Deuce. Focus Black Oklahoma is produced in partnership with KOSU Radio, Tulsa Artist Fellowship, and Tri-City Collective. Additional support is provided by the George Kaiser Family Foundation, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, and the Zero Families Foundation. Our theme music is by Moffat Music. Focus Black Oklahoma's executive producers are Karesh Ali Lantana and Bracken Klar. Our associate producers are Smriti Iyengar and Jesse Ulrich. Visit us online at kosu.org, tricitycollective.com slash focusblackoklahoma, and YouTube at Tricity Collective. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at focusblackok. You can hear Focus Black Oklahoma on demand for free at kosu.org, NPR One, npr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. KOSU values input from our listeners and the communities we serve. That's why we have the KOSU Texting Club. By texting the word hello to 844-777-7719, you'll sign up to get occasional messages from reporters about stories they're working on and from KOSU staff about news happening at the station. Text the word hello to 844-777-7719 to add your voice to our newsroom today.